This is a tape recording made by Wing Commander Bree at 4 Hamilton Place on the 19th of February 1970 in the presence of the Chairman of the Historical Group J.L. Naylor, Mrs. Bradbrook, past editor of the Journal, Miss Rigby, Secretary of the Historical Group, and A.W.L. Naylor, Librarian of the Society. His reminiscences are followed by a short discussion with the Chairman of the Historical Group. Wing Commander Bree points out that the Reams date he gives of 1909 is incorrect and should be 1908. Uh, my name is Reggie Bree. I was born on November the 27th, 1895. My parents died when I was quite young and I was brought un up under guardianship at Uxbridge and uh, attended as a pupil at the Uxbridge County School. My interest in aviation uh, came about uh, during that period uh, when I read rather surreptitiously in a daily paper the fact uh, that there had been a flying meeting at uh, Reims in France, this I think would be about 1909. And from then onwards, uh, my one keen ambition in life was to become an airman. Um, I was apprenticed at the age of uh, 16 and a half to a firm of engineers at Southall, Submersible and J.O. Motors, but before my apprenticeship could be completed, the 1914 war broke out. I then tried to join the Flying Corps in any capacity possible, but uh, there seemed to be no vacancies, and before I knew where I was, I found I'd been recruited uh, into the um, Royal Field Artillery as a, as a Tommy. In 1915, I found myself in France with the 26th Division, and uh, November 1915, I found myself with my battery en route as a corporal to Salonica, where... Uh, I remained on the Doyran front until 1917. There was apparently a shortage of officer material. I then reached the rank of uh, battery sergeant, and I was sent home for a gunner's commission. And that was the big opportunity uh, to uh, transfer to the Royal Flying Corps. Not, of course, without some difficulties. But uh, I was useful material, having been in the gunners, and uh, after going through the appropriate cadet courses, I found myself uh, graded, not as a pilot, but as an observer. And uh, because of my artillery experience, and I was very much disturbed about this. However, uh, by a little bit of scheming, I managed to get my posting to an art ob squadron, uh, changed uh, to a bomber squadron, and uh, uh, towards the end of 1917, I was posted to um, Andover, where uh, um, number 104 Squadron was being formed. And uh, about April or May 1918, uh, we went to France and became part of the Independent Air Force based at Azalo near Nancy. Our job out there was to bomb Germany on uh, DH-9s, and uh, it was uh, uh, very difficult because um, uh, we were all new to the job. I, of course, was a backseat pilot, and um, we used to go over without any escort at all, and uh, our casualties uh, began to mount up. About September, whilst I was on a trip to bomb Mannheim, uh, my pilot, a Canadian, uh, Captain Home Hay, and I, as his flight commander's observer, were shot down and uh, near Zabern, and I was taken prisoner 
and uh, was in Germany until uh, towards the end of the year, uh, when after being in about six different prisoner war camps, I then returned to England from Danzig and arrived at Leith on Boxing Day, 1918, and uh, then was on leave for some time. The question then arose as to what my own personal future would be, and, uh, well, uh, I wasn't anxious to get out, because I was still comparatively young. I wasn't anxious to get out. I had no job to go to, and I wanted to be in aviation, so I was granted, uh, found uh, towards the end of 1919 that I was uh, granted, not as I hoped a permanent commission, but a short service commission. And uh, so I remained in the Royal Air Force until 1922, when, as uh, the powers that be would not grant me a permanent commission yet, but told me I would get it if I stayed in, I decided to come out into civil life. I had no particular qualifications and um, many abortive attempts at finding a suitable and satisfactory job. I linked up with the Shell organization and became a, uh, a salesman on the road in the London area, visiting garages, oil shops and so forth, selling petrol, paraffin, candles and all these lubricating oil, all these products of the oil companies. And I was with uh, the Shell Company until um, 1929. It was uh, during that period that I found that I had so much time on my hands that uh, I decided that a change would become essential at some time or another, and I studied for my commercial B license. And um, I got this in 1929, and uh, no sooner had I got it, I was still with Shell, working during the week, but no sooner had I got this, then I found, uh, then I saw an advertisement in the aeroplane and or flight, uh, a very simple one, and it read, Be licensed pilot required for weekend joyriding. I rushed out uh, to the nearest telephone and got on to a Croydon telephone number that was given, and much to my surprise, I found myself talking to uh, Colonel G.L.P. Henderson was quite a character in the other war, and um, he said, well, the job was mine, uh, providing I sent him a fee for two guineas as his uh, registration fee. And uh, over the next uh, few months, uh, I found myself uh, doing a full-time job with Shell during the week, and I was joyriding at Maylands uh, near Chelmsford. Uh, at weekends, and, uh, much to my surprise, I found that I was making more joyriding, uh, taking up people at five shillings a time on Avro 504Ks, which uh, were so uh, modified that uh, one could take up two passengers sitting on a, a straddling a board in the, in the rear seat, that um, uh, it was a, a very exciting time. It was, uh, however, it was around this time when I was also doing my reserve flying training uh, with de Havilland's at Stag Lane, and um, that winter of 29, I was engaged on a, a cross-country flight to Duxford and return. It was part of the 12 hours a year annual training that one had to complete uh, set schedule. And on the return journey, uh, late in the afternoon, I ran into the sort of conditions that none of us 
ever wanted to get into. Low cloud, rain, poor visibility, and um, in the end I couldn't find Stag Lane. They could hear me circling around. Stag Lane was near Hendon. And um, in the end I had to make a forced emergency landing. It was a, despera a desperation landing because I had colossal wind up. And uh, I finished up in Aldenham Wood and wrote everything off except myself. Uh, I thought at that time that I was a, a pretty competent pilot. But uh, quite obviously, um, uh, a human error failed at a critical moment. And uh, the more I thought about it, uh, particularly as then I lost my B license because uh, the medical people at the Air Ministry uh, insisted on a medical examination, and three weeks later they found I had delayed concussion. It was at that period that uh, I had food for thought, and uh, although it was obviously an error of judgment on the part of the pilot, I felt that could I but have flown and landed slowly, that uh, I would not uh, nearly have killed myself. And it was in this frame of mind that um, my thoughts turned towards uh, Joan de la Sierra's creation, the Autogyro, which was being at that time developed in this country. I had already seen one uh, a year or two before, and like most people with a fixed-wing complex, because I was essentially uh, basically an aeroplane pilot, I had been rather amused at the difficulties in takeoff, the taxi, the long, prolonged taxiing period, and so forth, and just sort of thrown it out of my mind. But now I was really uh, faced with quite a different proposition, and uh, I hadn't seen one land before. I had heard that it could land without a run, or with a very short run. And I got in touch with the Sierra Autogyro Company, found out where I could see a demonstration of uh, one of these machines, and uh, I was sold. And through the kindness of the Sierra Company, I was uh, later allowed to uh, fly it solo. And um, by the uh, towards the end of 1930, I'd uh, got in about an hour solo. And um, I was uh, I was waiting at Heston on one occasion to have some uh, refresher jewel from Rawson, who was then the chief test pilot. And um, he went up on a preliminary flight with a passenger, and in the course of that hit a tree, wrecked the machine, broke and broke his leg. And I, being at Heston, went along to where the crash was nearby, and um, got in touch with uh, Blake, the secretary of the Sierra Autogyro Company, and told him what had happened. He asked me to wait there, he then got in touch with uh, Jimmy Weir. This was a Saturday afternoon, I recall it well, because later on they both arrived by taxi. And um, um, from that uh, generated uh, what was to come my future life in aviation, in rotary wings, because um, the next month, in December, they had an important demonstration uh, booked uh, for France. And uh, except for Sierra himself, who uh, was really rather too busy to do that sort of thing, then they were without a pilot. And I was asked if I would uh, join them on a purely short-term engagement of three months to undertake this assignment. I, uh, of course, I had a wife and a, f a young family, a son and a daughter in those days, but uh, I made the decision 
and uh, found myself towards the end of uh, December in France. It was, I had many adventures getting there, but I gave the demonstration there. I also had many adventures coming back because the early autogyros were not particularly easy to handle on the ground. The blades were very susceptible to wind effect. The bracing cables that held the blades up on the ground, the stranded cables used to fray, and unless one uh, almost had second sight, they'd uh, fray at the wrong moment and let the blade uh, droop down uh, onto the uh, tail and all this sort of thing. But um, from this uh, developed uh, my period of three months uh, came up, and it was then that I'd managed to put up a reasonably good job with the Sierra Company, and uh, they became interested in what was known as the Daily Mail Air Tour of Great Britain. It uh, was the first aerial circus that ever was formed in this country under C.D. Barnard, uh, and uh, with the Daily Mail sponsorship. And um, about April 1930, I found myself uh, loaned to the Daily Mail with an autogyro to take part in the Daily Mail Air Tour. That tour lasted six months. We uh, covered or visited 150 different towns in the country. I got in 400 hours of flying, and uh, my job had by then been made a permanent one with the Sierra Autogyro Company. Rawson was still the, the uh, chief pilot, uh, Sierra, of course, was the chief test pilot, and I became the demonstration pilot. As a result of that tour, uh, and the experience that had been gained, and uh, the general, the good impression that uh, the uh, autogyro had created in the minds of the beholders, uh, it was decided to create a service depot and school at uh, Hanworth. Heston had, up to that stage, after leaving uh, Hamble in 1930, Heston had been the main base for demonstration and sales activities, but it was decided to uh, create a, a service depot at Hanworth, and I was appointed manager and chief pilot, and um, uh, it was from that stage where the sales of uh, autogyros uh, commenced to take place. Those days, of course, it was a C-19 Mark IV two-seater with a 105-horsepower Jennet engine. Uh, no mechanical starter to the rotor system, which was therefore a little bit difficult to start under conditions of no wind. It was also difficult to handle if there was a wind because the blade loading was very light and uh, there was difficulty in keeping control of blades on the ground. But uh, over this period, the techniques were developed which made the job easier. But however, the uh, thing was, of course, to have a clutch installed so that the initial drive to the rotor system could uh, be done mechanically. And uh, this occurred in the C-19 Mark IV in 1932. We sold uh, a few, I would say probably about 12 to 18 C-19s Mark IV, uh, Mark III, I should say, as an error, uh, but the C-19 Mark IV was a considerably cleaned-up machine. It uh, had a normal aircraft tail surface, uh, elevator and rudder. It had stub wings and aileron. But uh, the great feature was that it had a mechanical starter 
and a clutch to get the rotor buzzing up beforehand, and that considerably reduced the time uh, before takeoff. An extremely pleasant machine to fly, and uh, these machines were sold in, in quite fair numbers for those days. However, uh, I can recall that one of our earliest pupils was aged 68, one J.A. McMullen. Um, uh, in the meantime, I'd got Alan Marsh, encouraged him to come and join us, and he became my assistant. And it was at that stage where we decided to create a school to ensure that all pilots, no matter how experienced they were or inexperienced, could have the proper basic instruction. Because uh, we found that even the most experienced professional pilots or service pilots uh, felt they knew all there was to know about slow speed flying, whereas of course they didn't, and they tended to handle the machine as they'd seen it demonstrated, and of course the inevitable slip-ups occurred. So the purpose of the school was really to establish a proper training curriculum and to encourage pilots, uh, whoever wanted to, or amateurs, to come and fly with us. The C-19, as I said, was a very pleasant machine to fly. It looked nice. It had cantilever blades, three cantilever blades, as distinct from the four uh, blades on the C-19, Mark III, and um, uh, so the school became established, and we had uh, pupils uh, begin to come to us, old and young, and all parts of the world, and it was at that stage when Sierra was very uh, active, indeed, in developing an aircraft that would be free of the limitations at the slow speed end of the range on coming into land, as were exhibited by the C-19, because the ailerons, of course, the aileron effect and uh, normal movable surfaces of an aeroplane were practically useless, and if uh, one were landing in gusty weather conditions, um, it was not unusual to drop a wing when one was perhaps about 10 feet up, and uh, unless one knew of this characteristic, prepared for it, uh, the, the uh, use of the aileron could not get the wing back, and so the aircraft unfortunately would land on a wing and roll over, and the rotor system would be uh, extensively damaged. And Sierra's uh, idea was to eliminate all these normal fixed-wing surfaces and to incorporate uh, control, uh, whole of the control, in the rotor system. And um, so this was the basis of the C-30 uh, autogyro. It was known as the wingless autogyro because it had no wings. It just had a, a rotor system mounted on a universal joint which the pilot could tilt in any direction and according to the direction of the tilt that uh, exercised uh, adequate control. Uh, because of uh, it being known of these experimental and later full development activities, of course, this retarded uh, the sales of the C-19. On the other hand, the school became very popular and uh, many pupils male and female, uh, old and young. Our youngest pupil was a, a messenger boy who had become too old at 16 and a half to be a, a messenger boy, and I gave him a job sweeping up a hangar fla uh, floor and taught him to fly. One F.J. Cable, who later became a test pilot uh, under the Air Ministry or the MAP at, at Bewley. 
The C-19 was a very, very marked uh, breakthrough in rotary wing development. And, uh, of course, in uh, looking in retrospect, of course, uh, except for the propeller in the front, it was somewhat reminiscent of the uh, modern helicopter. Um, however, the C-19, with a mechanical starter, uh, made an excellent school machine. And we had, we had inquiries from all over the world, and there were very few countries in Europe uh, that ha didn't, at some time or another, purchase one, two, or even three for military purposes. That seemed to be the big application. We also, of course, had many uh, private owners over here. The machine was uh, produced by Avros at Manchester under license, and uh, I, uh, to the best of my recollection, about 130 or 140 were sold altogether. But once again, during these formative years, that is from about 1934 onwards, uh, Sierva was still active in, in uh, further basic developments. The, uh, despite the improved performance of the C-30 compared with the C-19, it still needed, under still air conditions, about, uh, well, 60 to 70 yards uh, for a takeoff run. And it was obvious that if it could be persuaded to take off without any run at all, that that would be uh, a tremendous improvement in performance. And it was from this idea that Sierra uh, developed the concept of the uh, jump takeoff autogyro. That is an autogyro which uh, could uh, take off without a run as well as land without a run. Unfortunately, the technical difficulties associated with this in translating uh, theory and then experiment into practice uh, were much greater than had hitherto been imagined. And with the development of the improved type of rotor system, um, we also ran into that phenomena that was to rear its ugly head in later years, both here and in America, of ground resonance. And it wasn't until uh, Sierva uh, was killed in an airplane accident at Croydon in 1936, and his loss certainly threw this particular development back considerably. Uh, James Bennett, who had been his assistant, then became the technical uh, director of the Sierva Autogyro Company. And although we had our own team that had been created over the years of engineers, technicians, and so forth, we were a very small setup, really. Um, it wasn't until about 1938 that jump takeoff uh, emerged in a fully developed form, and uh, this was, towards the end of 1938, known as the C-40. And here we had a machine that, to all external purposes, was very much like the C-30, but it had this ability, through uh, overspeeding the rotor, to store up energy, kinetic energy, uh, over above, about 50% above the normal takeoff rotor revolutions, and one was able to catapult oneself into the air, uh, to a distance of 10, 20 feet, according to the wind, even in no wind conditions. One could take off and stay off uh, by the development of a special technique. And um, this was a tremendous leap forward. It was in 1939 the, the Air Ministry had ordered five of these uh, for naval use. And in 1939, we trained uh, two Navy pilots and uh, delivered uh, two of these machines. The further three were to come along because the Navy 
had at last, after many years of hesitancy and delay and that sort of thing, uh, begun to believe that perhaps uh, there was a future in rotary wings for anti-submarine duties with the fleet. Um, I haven't mentioned, but in 1935, uh, I made, at the invitation of the Italian government, I made the world's first landings and takeoffs ever on a cruiser uh, off La Spezia in the Mediterranean, and uh, this was done with the uh, Fiume uh, stationary in the harbour, and uh, also out in the Mediterranean at speeds from 12 up to uh, 24 knots. Uh, it was quite the experience because the C-30 was not really adapted to that sort of work. Um, the precautions taken for the protection of the pilot were none other than a couple of speedboats on either side of the cruiser, divers and doctors on board, but fortunately we didn't uh, go in the drink. Uh, however, following that 1935 experience, uh, this is in connection with the Navy interest, I was asked when I came back to this country, during uh, 35, if I would repeat these experiments uh, over here. I declined to do it unless there was some guarantee of an order because uh, really uh, it was rather a dangerous undertaking and I didn't think it ought to be done without an order. The Italian government in any case had given us an order and I didn't see why our own admiralty should not give an order if they were satisfied with the demonstration. It didn't come about that way, but they decided to buy uh, a C-30 and uh, so that they could conduct their own experiments. And uh, during, towards the end of that year, it came to my knowledge that they were having some difficulties, and I was shown a report from the station, the naval station where this C-30 was, was uh, housed, that the pilot had uh, been very critical of the handling of the C-30 and had come to the conclusion that uh, it would be most hazardous to even land one of these aircraft on a carrier. I was shown this report, and I, uh, my retort was uh, very short and is really unprintable, and the next thing I knew was that I was asked if I would uh, do this uh, experiment for the Admiralty, and I said, yes, it was their machine, and I would do it. In fact, they insisted that I did it with their machine and not with one of our own uh, civil machines. Although there was no basic difference between the two, I think they felt that they had got something that was uh, unmanageable. And so I went along and uh, picked up the machine and had it serviced, and uh, before very long I made the first uh, landings ever on a British carrier. There was a furious in the, in the channel. Uh, and it was, uh, of course, very simple. I mean, an aircraft carrier was like an airfield for an autogyro. And it was this, I think, that finally stimulated interest in the place of the order for the C-40s. Well, before the five C-40s could be delivered to the Admiralty, war broke out in uh, September uh, 1939, and uh, the future then of uh, rotary wings in this country was very much at stake, because the whole war effort naturally had to go into something that was more commonly acceptable, uh, particularly as far as aircraft were concerned. The Sierra Company uh, carried on for the next two or three months, and uh, then uh, we were approached uh, by MAP, um, or the Air Ministry combined, um, to see whether we could uh, undertake some experiments connected with radar calibration around the coast. 
and it involved uh, undertaking work that hitherto for certain types of uh, calibration of the main uh, six or seven main stations uh, around the coast uh, had hitherto been done by balloon and this was found to be very cumbersome, time-wasting and uh, far from accurate. And so I found myself uh, in the winter of 1939, I was still with the Sea Over Autogyro Company, but I was employed under special contract for a few months uh, to link up with uh, Fighter Command and uh, carrying a scientist about with me. Uh, I visited the different stations around the coast, starting with the, the main station at uh, Ventnor in the Isle of Wight, and I proceeded around uh, around the Thames Estuary, uh, up the northeast coast, up to Scotland, and then finally up to Hatston in the Orkneys. And I calibrated these six stations, and it became apparent that for this particular type of low-level calibration, that the autogyro could really do this job of work. Uh, I was still a civilian, but uh, as a reward for my services, the um, the Royal Air Force or the Air Ministry or what have you, an uh, officialdom decided that uh, the thing to do was to push me into uniform again, and uh, with much pecuniary loss because I had some reserve liability, and uh, I set about creating a special calibration flight at Duxford in uh, 1940. Um, we had no new aircraft at all, but I knew where the various autogyros were, either whole or in bits and pieces. Um, uh, my pilots were hand-picked from those who had, of course, been active with us at Hanworth. The same applies to the engineers as well, with a leavening of uh, service uh, uh, mechanics, of whom I knew. And uh, this uh, flight, special calibration flight, was created uh, by myself as a flight lieutenant at Duxford. And um, uh, then uh, it was decided that I should uh, also have uh, further duties to do, and I became a squadron leader in charge of uh, a radio maintenance unit. I was uh, running this flight, calibration flight, and this radio maintenance unit, which had to look after about uh, 10 ra uh, radar stations, of various types uh, between the Thames Estuary and the Wash. And uh, whilst I was there, my unit was, uh, was decided to elevate it to a wing. And to my great disgust, I found that uh, I became squadron leader admin in my own unit because I hadn't any previous signals experience. And um, uh, whilst I was in a very unsettled and unhappy frame of mind, I received a telephone call from an old friend of mine of my service days in the 1920s who, with whom I'd served in India, uh, one a group captain Harvey who was then uh, commanding the central landing establishment at Ringway where they were very active on developing equipment for parachutists and uh, weapons dropping from aircraft and all this sort of thing. And uh, he uh, telephoned me uh, to know if I'd be interested in a change of environment. And I said, it all depends what it is. He said, well, it's a wing commander's job. And there are one or two people up here you also know. We know one another. And before I knew where I were, was, the posting had come through. And I spent six very, very happy months 
at the central landing establishment at Ringway. On very hush-hush work, I was uh, put in charge of the technical development unit. Um, whilst I was there uh, towards the end of this six months, uh, I received a call to go and see uh, my commanding officer, Harvey, and uh, he said to me, uh, look here, what's this you've been up to? In any case, it's not going to happen. And I was completely in the dark uh, as to what he meant. And apparently he'd received a signal from London that I was to be immediately posted to the Admiralty for special duties. Uh, he sent a signal back to say under no circumstances was he willing to part with me. And before you could say Jack Robinson, he had another signal back to say uh, just that I'd got to go. And uh, in, uh, so I reported to the Admiralty, I think this was about August 1941, and um, uh, I found, I reported to then one Captain Casper John, and um, I found that I was required for special duties in America, uh, where, uh, through interest in this country owing to the uh, war effort in other directions, uh, any major interest in the production of uh, autogyres, of course, it had to be shelved. Uh, my past experience in deck landings, of course, was known. It was very limited, but it had been successful. And uh, I was sent to America to try and stimulate uh, American interest uh, under Eastland in uh, producing autogyres that could be used uh, for anti-submarine duties, because any method that seemed to have the slightest possibilities in those days, it was essential it should be tried out, because the submarine menace was very real. Um, so, uh, about September 1941, that was before Pearl Harbor, I found myself in America, outwardly a civilian, but with my uniform in, of course, a suitcase. And when, in December, Pearl Harbor happened and America came fully into the war, the next day, of course, I was back once again in uniform. I was then, I'd, uh, whilst in America, of course, I'd been in close touch with our American licensees, the Pitcairn Autogyro Company and the Kellett Company. They were licensees of the Seaver Autogyro Company. And, of course, I was uh, with people that I knew and very much admired and liked. And um, uh, I had instructions, I was given an absolutely free hand, except that uh, the uh, United States Navy were bitterly opposed to any work at all to do with rotary wings. This was a political matter, and uh, I was uh, handed over by our own admiralty, a merchant vessel, which I was told to design and uh, have equipped in Baltimore a, a, a flat deck on the stern. There was a merchant ship called the Empire Mersey, um, I was uh, allocated uh, at Philadelphia uh, a Pitcairn uh, PA-39 jump takeoff autogyro, uh, somewhat similar to the C-40, uh, which we've been developing in this country. And um, in May 1941, uh, I made the world's first uh, deck landings on a merchant vessel in Chesapeake Bay, making several landings and takeoffs. Um, the Admiralty were naturally interested uh, in this uh, success, but uh, they were in a difficult position because uh, if they showed any too much enthusiasm for this new uh, means of deck landing, uh, then they were in trouble with their opposite numbers in America, the American Navy, who, as I said earlier, wouldn't have anything to do with rotary wings. 
but in the meantime, I had become aware of Igor Sikorsky's activity and had seen the VS-300. And I was very, very, very much impressed by its ability to hover. This deck landing business where one uh, couldn't land without a run, although one could take off without a run with an autogyro, uh, this inability to hover and uh, to move at the same speed as the deck, or even to go in reverse, was uh, such a terrific development that uh, I was sold. And when uh, I was told to... Um, uh, take an autogyro down to the Caribbean because the American ships were being sunk uh, rather wholesale on that part of East American Eastern seaboard by German submarines. And when I was told to take an autogyro down to the Caribbean and come up as an escort, uh, I flatly refused to do it and uh, pointed out that uh, it would be impossible in any case to train other pilots to do this sort of thing. Uh, and the uh, great thing now was to concentrate on this helicopter development. In the meantime, I had made a very good friend at Wright Field. The, uh, the uh, helicopter development in America had the backing of the Army Air Forces. And uh, I had a very good friend at Wright Field, uh, Captain uh, Frank, uh, or Lieutenant Colonel uh, Frank Gregory. And we both spoke a common language, and uh, we both uh, were determined to try and get this helicopter uh, development across. And um, about the middle of um, 1942, uh, I was privileged uh, to be the only foreigner who was ever allowed to fly the original XR4 prototype solo at Wright Field. My report that came back uh, was accepted in England and an order was placed. I was then, of course, in, in Washington. Uh, my uh, my um, senior officer there was Air Marshal Roderick Hill, who was a tower of strength uh, to me in backing me up. And uh, largely as a result of uh, his cooperation and uh, efforts, an order was placed uh, for 50 of these on behalf of the British under Lisa Lend, and the Army Air Forces had also ordered 50, and that was the first production order that Sikorsky ever had. Um, uh, it then became apparent that uh, although the uh, R-4 four, the had potentialities uh, all right for demonstrating its ability to land and take off and find areas on decks and in the rough seas and that sort of thing, uh, that uh, something bigger was needed if it were to really fill an operational role. And uh, this is where the R-5 was then developed by Sikorsky, so that it could carry a pilot and observer, uh, and also carry uh, some, uh, some war load in the shape of bombs or, bombs or so forth. And um, uh, the R-5 went into production, and uh, about 1930, Four, uh, no less than 250 of these were ordered in Washington on behalf of the British. And uh, unfortunately the story is that we never got one of them because even the Americans were then beginning to appreciate that this rotary wing business had a terrific potential. The R-5, of course, was the basic of the first Sikorsky-type aircraft to be uh, commercially certificated after the war in 1946. And of course, in 1947, uh, the BEA helicopter unit uh, acquired three of these. I'm jumping the gun just a little bit, but um, 
uh, in this country, interest had been stimulated by the end of the war in this helicopter business, in which, uh, incidentally, Weirs had been uh, active and interested for some years, but they hadn't reached the stage of development with their side-by-side -side rotor system that Sikorsky had with his single rotor system. And, um, uh, of course, uh, at the end of the war in 1945, I was demobilized once again without a job, and um, I was invited to join the Ferry Aviation Company, who had decided that, uh, to take an interest in uh, rotor-wing aircraft development. I was with them for uh, about uh, six months or seven months, and um, uh, then left uh, to become a consultant. And um, uh, I didn't find this a very profitable occupation, although uh, there was a possibility that I might, at some future date, receive an offer from America. Uh, but in the winter of 1947, uh, in the winter of 1946, I should say, um, I was uh, through the very good offices of uh, Peter Macefield, who uh, was then, uh, I believe, at MAP. Uh, I was uh, employed as a consultant to go to America to check up on the present position. And in company with uh, James Bennett and uh, R.N. Liptrot, we went across there, and uh, I was over there for about three months. And it was at this period, about uh, April 47, or it might have been March 47, when I received a firm offer, offer from American industry to join up with the Sikorsky organization. And I was delighted at this. And my surprise was considerable when, within 24 hours, I received a cable from England uh, offering me an appointment with British European Airways who, uh, with whom uh, a helicopter experimental unit was to be formed. I was in a bit of a predicament because um, I knew the American uh, set up very well indeed. I liked the Americans. I had many friends there, and I'd always felt that if I had an offer from there, uh, I would accept it. The blood was stronger than water. My son was then a junior officer, regularly in the Royal Air Force, and my daughter, younger daughter, was... Uh, beginning to get rather more mature, and I felt that uh, fate had intervened, and uh, whether it was the tossing of a coin or whatever it was that influenced me, I turned the American offer down and uh, accepted the offer, which was cabled to me by N.E. Rowe, incidentally, who had been DTT at MAP during the war, and was now controller of research and long-term development with British European OAs, and I accepted his offer and uh, joined uh, B.A. on the 1st of July, 1947. For the next 10 years, I was in command of the B.A. Helicopter Experimental Unit, during which we made the world's first uh, night mail uh, activity uh, in East Anglia. We started many experimental passenger services, Liverpool to Cardiff, Birmingham to London, Southampton to London, and so forth, uh, delving really into the uh, commercial prospects of uh, helicopter transportation. Um, uh, my hopes, of course, were not fulfilled in, in the way one would have thought. And I had hoped that during that decade that we would have seen uh, commercial 
helicopter transports more fully developed, but of course these things take time and patience and faith and so forth. And then, uh, having reached uh, an age where normal retirement became effective with BEA, uh, I had to leave them in um, 1957. And uh, it was thanks to uh, Sir Eric Mensforth that I was invited to join the Westland organization at Yeovil. Uh, this meant uprooting my family from uh, London, and we moved to the West Country in 1957, and for the last 12 years, that is until December the 31st, I've been employed by Westland as an assistant to the directors there. One of my particular activities, of course, was the development of the Westland London Heliport, uh, the only uh, licensed heliport in the London area. Uh, and, of course, giving advice and assistance and encouragement to the local authorities to reserve suitable sites for uh, the future helicopter operations, which have always appeared to me and still appear to me to be inevitable as a short-range uh, means of uh, passenger transportation. Can we stop there? <laughs> you remember Lee Temple? Yes. He, was one of the, he was one of the early ones. He came to give a demonstration near Uxbridge. And he forced landed, the weather was so rough, he forced landed in Hillingdon Park. Oh, and it was about uh, two miles from where I lived, and I ran like hell as fast as my legs would carry me. And I recall to this day, you know, this sort of open framework bleary over there, the uncowled engine, and this prop with a peculiar blade on it, and the smell of castor oil. And, and there was he, you know, with a cap on backwards, and goggles somewhere up here, looked absolutely exhausted, you know, even after about half an hour of having been down. Yes. Oh, the great days, those. And I remember when Pickles, I remember when Pickles crashed at uh, Hendon, you know, with Mrs. Stocks. I was there. I couldn't afford, you see, I couldn't afford to buy a ticket to go in. I cycled over from Uxbridge, and I was looking over the fence that was around it. Yes, and I saw them side slipping. They were taken to the local hospital, you know, Pickles and stuff. And of course, the staff, Hamill and all those people. No, I didn't know. I only knew of them, you see. I mean, I, uh, I knew of them. Junior Fry. I was in college with them. And I yeah. didn't come into the scientific science in 13. No. Right. It was based on the stability. Oh, yes. Yes, oh, definitely. Well, I never got in. I can't recall ever having got inside Hendon uh, until I took part in the, uh, a couple of RAF displays, incidentally, with the Autogyro. Uh, that was the only time when I ever got in, you know, in those early days on hope. And funny enough, Northolt was fairly near us, and I used to see some flying over there. You know, there was a squadron, I think, created there about 1913 or so. Yes. And the very first flight I ever had was at North Holt, um, because a friend of mine, a school friend of mine, had become an instructor there. And I was taken up by one of his friends in, in a 504, thrown about the sky, and oh, when I came down, I thought, oh no, no not, not this for me. <laughs> you know, it almost put me off. Oh yes. Uh, well, it was just the same. She'd been up flying, and she was going to get some training on it. But she got so shaken up one of the days she was up, she'd gone off it again, but I think she could. Yes. Well, I, funny enough about this joyriding business at Maylands, you know, um, uh, there I uh, had quite an adventure. You weren't a pilot, were you? No. 
I was, you see, I, I went solo on a, an Evro 504 with a mono Supap engine, and that only had one uh, lever, you one know, one throttle lever, and you blipped on top of the joystick, yeah. you know, blip, blip. But uh, when I took on this joyriding job, uh, these people had uh, an Avro with a Lerone engine in it. Now, the Lerone engine had two levers. Yes. And I remember going to Travers, who was chief instructor. They had this, uh, had two of them, in fact, in a big field at the back of the Finchley Road. And I, uh, <clears throat> and I was to move those from there to Maylands, where we were going to joyride. And um, I remember having a chat with Travers, who was the chief instructor of the London Flying Club. I said, Travers said, what's the difference between flying a, a mono Avro and a Lerone Avro? And he said to me, oh, well, he said, there's no difference at all. He said, um, the uh, mono, you know, had a single lever, uh, uh, throttle, you know, control, and the, uh, the uh, Lerone has two. And he said, you ride a, you ride a motorbike, don't you? I said, yes, I have done. He said, well, you know how you twiddle them, don't you? You know, to get the right mixture. Oh, I said, uh, nothing more than that, isn't it? No, he said, same fuel system and everything else, you see. And uh, so I went to this uh, this field, and uh, uh, there was a mechanic there, and my sponsors, and started this thing up. And uh, one of these people decided he'd fly across to Maylands with me. And uh, so, having run up on the ground, chocks away, you know, and uh, started off, and uh, something wasn't going quite well, and I decided that, uh, you know, just I was about to take off, that I wouldn't. So I came back and got up again and put the chocks on, and I ran the engine up. My passenger decided that uh, he didn't want to go with me after making a false start, <laughs> you see. And read it up again, and it was lucky for me that he, he didn't, uh, he decided not to fly because we started with everything, getting the revs, you know, and that lovely rhythm and everything else. I took off, and um, I remember just after takeoff there was the Finchley Road buses and things going along, traffic along there, and I was uh, vaguely aware that as I was uh, climbing that there was a, you know, sort of feeling of a clutching hand about. And uh, I slowly turned and was facing 180 degrees round, I suppose, at about, oh, couldn't be more than about 400 feet or so. And everything went silent. I choked the engine like hell. They could see clouds of black smoke clear by. <laughs> they couldn't say a word to me. I was totally oblivious and unconscious. And, you know, I got this, I got this Avro down in so small a field that it couldn't, they had to, it had to be dismantled to get it out, and I got it down without damaging anything. They wanted to sack me there. I heard after the original thing was to sack me there and then on the spot. They thought, well, if he can get it down anyway, there must be something to it. And, uh, so, uh, it was then taken over to Maylands, uh, you know, and I did my practicing at Maylands. Now, before I started carrying these passengers, before the first weekend, I thought I'd better get the hand in with a bit of stunting, because you see, you had these two passengers across a, you remember, across a plank in the back. That's all it was, no belt, so there's no time to strap people in. Five bob a time, you know, the more fights you get in, the more profitable. And, um, but if you, if, if they would elect to go for a stunt, looping, you'd get 15 bob. Whereas it was 10, anyhow. 10 bob, I think, 10 bob a time, twice as much, and all you had to do was to go up to about 900 and loop them, and I thought I'd get some practice in, and you know, where Malins is, 
It's along the, near the South End Road, where what is known as Gallows Corners. There's a, there's a pub there, or there was a pub there. And I thought, well, I'd better get my hand in with stunting once again. And you know, on my first loop, uh, I didn't have enough speed. I was so low, you see. And you know how one sat between all these cross-bracing wires in front, and you had a lap strap belt round, you know. And uh, I, I hadn't got enough speed, and I hung on top. And I, well, I just had to let everything go. I mean, I slipped down onto my belt here. I caught the struts on either side like this, you see. And there was I upside down. And it just had to, you know, come out. And you know, that so shook me. The thought that if I'd had a passenger with me, that have dropped out. That I would never loop, but I'd spin, you know. And I'd take them up to a thousand feet. And I'd, I'd get in about two to two and a half turns of a spin. And it used to... All the people behind, you know, especially the, the ladies, you know, you'd hear the shrieks from the hiders one, you know, held her up like this and then stalled her and came up and whipped round, you know. But it wasn't a vicious whip with the arrows, you know. Yes. <laughs> Funny days. Yes, I was making more in a weekend than I was in my regular job with Shell. <laughs> the joy riding. Well, though, but of course the engines weren't very reliable in those days. And look at my logbook the other day, you know, I found on some occasions, you see, on a, a, a Saturday or Sunday, I take up as, perhaps as many as 90 passengers, and then another one, perhaps only 10 or 15, because, yes, but because of engine trouble, you know, the blessed, um, what was it they used to, oh, the tappets, the tappet, uh, the tappet rollers used to go so badly, though, well, these engines only had a life of about 50 to 100 hours, didn't they, you know. <laughs> they were, of course, war stock in any case. Oh, they were great days. Well, look, I'm taking everybody's time. The press never lost an opportunity, did they, of deriding us and that sort of thing. And uh, I was going off to the deep end on one occasion at Hanworth, and Jimmy Weir happened to be nearby and overheard what I said. And a little later, he uh, called me on the side and he said, Reggie, he said, uh, you laid into that press chap, well, a bit just now. He said, after all, they've got to write something in any case, even if it's inaccurate. He said, one has to let it go, take the good with the bad. He said, but look, just remember this. With any worthwhile form of research and development, it's the first 20 years of the worst. And how right, how right he was, you know. He might have said 30. But, you know, that philosophy, you see. Because he, as you know, was a very active pilot himself, aeroplanes and uh, rotary wings, too. You know how the interest first started in this country, not in general? Well, Wimpress. What? Wimpress, wasn't oh, it? But I started it, really. Did you, did you I really? Saw extract in the press from Spain. Yes. That this thing had flown. I and set it round the the Arab Research Council was with us. Oh yes, yes. yes. And at the meeting, Jeffrey Taylor was there. Jeffrey yes. Taylor said, "Good God, how does this work?" Yes. Let's find out. Yes, the first signs of success. See about that. Yes. This after the first flight in, in Spain. And then Wimpress then sent uh, an invitation to Sierra to demonstrate yes, it. Was yes. Oh, absolutely. That's right. Yes. Well, isn't that marvelous? Well, there you are. Isn't that marvelous? Yes, exactly. That's marvelous. Yes. Yes. Uh, Wimpress was really the the medium. I mean, he was the uh, the, the official side. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Yes. She's Jeffrey Taylor. More people say, "Well, I don't know, but let's find out." Yes. This tape recording 
was made by Wing Commander Bree on the 19th of February 1970, just after he retired. It was recorded in the council room of the Royal Aeronautical Society at 4 Hamilton Place in the presence of the chairman of the historical group, J.L. Naylor, uh, Mrs. Bradbrook, past editor of the journal, Miss Rigby, secretary of the historical group, and A.W.L. Naylor, a librarian of the society. Wing Commander Bree has asked us to point out that the Reams date he gave, 1909, is incorrect. It should be 1908.